the Going West Writers Festival and Auckland Libraries bring you highlights from the 2018 Going West Writers Festival. It was a Sunday morning festival treat, but an any time listen for you now. The session was titled On Fragile Wings and was a discussion between Debbie and Rachel Stewart. Like so much of our unique and precious natural history, our majestic birds of prey are under threat. Written by conservation pioneer Debbie Stewart, The Hunters, The Precious Lives of New Zealand Birds of Prey is a significant contribution to our understanding of New Zealand's heritage and environment. In this conversation, Debbie discusses these extraordinary birds and the challenges that they face. No mai haere mai, atamarie. Welcome and good morning. It's lovely to see you here this morning. You are our discerning audience. You know when there's a really fabulous session coming up and we appreciate so much that you're here bright and early on a Sunday. Um, this is a session that I've really been anticipating this weekend. Um, I'm, and I'd also like to um, acknowledge our sponsors for the session, the Derrick Corporation. So today we have invited Debbie Stewart, who is the executive director and founder of Wingspan, the National Centre for Birds of Prey, sorry, I think the National Bird of Prey Centre, and she's been a lifelong conservationist. She's also a falconer, and she's going to be in conversation today with Rachel Stewart, and I know there's lots of Rachel Stewart fans out there this morning because they've told me, um, and she is a journalist and uh, currently writing a column for the New Zealand Herald. She's an advocate for uh, climate change action, and she's also one of nine registered falconers, and so is Debbie. And so we'd like to welcome these uh, falconers and uh, women of words to the stage this morning to talk about the hunters. So please give them a warm welcome. Okay. Good morning. I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing on a Sunday morning than talking about being with birds of prey or talking about birds of prey, other than sleeping, of course. <laughs> uh, and I'm very pleased to be talking to my good friend Debbie Stewart. We know each other quite well, pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. We're not related, but we are related through birds of prey. And uh, and I'm so proud that you've done your book. And Thank it you. It looks great. And um, how do you feel about it? Oh, I'm really excited, and indeed, when I was picked up from the airport, um, the driver said to me, oh, so you're at the Writers' Festival, are you a writer? And it was the first time that it sort of had hit home. <laughs> oh, oh, I, well, I think I might be, but um, um, I'm very unfamiliar in this sort of environment. Um, uh, I've usually got a bird on my arm when I'm, I'm talking, so I... I brought myself a, my security bag, and it's my falconer's bag, so if I start to panic or I have an anxiety attack, I can quickly grab my bag and go from there. Um, but just before Rachel starts asking me tricky questions, I just wanted to give you some background uh, for some of the slides that we'll be showing today. And uh, obviously very close to my heart, but I'm just going to put it onto a loop so that during the course of our talking to one another you'll get to see um, what we think is special and you'll be seeing uh, a falcon egg hatch. Hmm. Yeah. So and it's, it's taken over how many days? Uh, 
this is uh, the, the first series has taken over um, one hour of hatch. It takes three days for a falcon egg to hatch. And then we go from there. So it's just subtly in the background, just so that you can enjoy new life. Mm. And of course, I've accused Debbie many times, Deb, of bias towards falcons and against harriers. And I'm a bit of a hawking girl. Um, I love falcons. I love all bird spray. But um, you do seem to have a bit of a thing about falcons these days. But, you know, your roots were in hawks, like all of us. Um, But talking about the three main birds of prey in New Zealand. Yes. Okay. Let's have a chat about kahu, circus approximums, harrier hawk, my particular favourite. They get a bit of a bad rap because they have some... Uh, misnomers that are put on them about things that they may do or whatever. Tell, tell me about the difference. Tell me about their. Tell me about their traits and their hunting techniques as 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 opposed to the other two raptors. Let's talk about that. Oh, well, I, I, for for hawks, pe- people are familiar with kahu. Um, they see them quartering the paddocks. They see them gliding the skies. Uh, they go through these wonderful courtship. Um, uh, uh, courtships at this time of year that uh, we call sky dancing, which is a little bit emotive, but it's this beautiful ballet and flight of showing off to one another and, and showing their prowess. But they hunt differently. They're bigger birds, uh, so they aren't as fast as the falcon. So when we're talking about the kariria, New Zealand falcon, that's the one on our $20 note. Few people are aware that we have falcons, and uh, they are rarer than kiwi. There's probably less than 10,000 kariria surviving in New Zealand now, and uh, they need a little bit of press. So that's, I think, some of my bias towards them, because they just need a little bit of help. Mm. And, of course, then there's the, the, the ruru, the mōpōk owls, the, the birds of the night, you know, and... It's our falcons and our ruru that uh, are endemic. They're, they're not found anywhere else in the world. It's not like if we run out of them here that we can just go grab some from Australia or from Europe or something like that. So I think it's special to celebrate uh, our endemic birds particularly and uh, also our native birds in general. Hmm. Would you like to explain to people the difference in their hunting techniques? Uh, yes, so your harriers are, they're not lazy hunters, but they're opportunists. So they no, like to lazy. clean up the roads, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas your falcons generally take live, live prey uh, as well. And, and same with ruru um, as well. But it would be true to say that harriers take game on the ground? Yes, they do. So they, take... uh, they can still be good hunters. You know, they've got huge feet, uh, a yep. big grasp, uh, and they yep. don't have big feet like that. And occasionally that, so... they do grab a sparrow out of a tree. or so. You'll see them, they'll just get lucky and they'll grab it. Yeah. But mostly they take running game. Mm. Uh, if they haven't had the roadkill to keep them fat for the well, day. exactly. Yeah. Falcons, of course, take things on the wing. Yes, uh, they do. Uh, they are the hunters, the chase- chasers, the spitfires, um, and they generally don't eat carrion, um, uh, dead food. Um, so 95% of their diet is uh, introduced species, but falcons... Uh, even though they're small, they punch above their weight. So we've had records of kariria, New Zealand falcon, taking game as large as rabbit, hare, pheasant, um, which six times their own body weight. It's pretty bolshy. Yes, mm. it is. Very mm. bolshy. Um, 
to look, let's talk about the threats they're all facing, well, particularly Falcon. Hmm. Uh, the number one problem is people. <laughs> um, out of all of the birds that uh, we have received at uh, Wingspan over the years, um, by far uh, the biggest cause of their injury is um, persecution. So deliberate shooting remains a huge problem for uh, many of our birds of prey. And I think it's just people that don't know or don't care, but you, you start to get into the depth um, of who these birds are, what they are, the effect they have on the environment, and it's about understanding. So I'm hoping through the pages of my book that people will um, start to appreciate the, the role of birds of prey and how special they are. It's in quite incredible how many people are more in love with their mm. chooks than they are with falcon, and so they will shoot them. Mm. Yes, because Even they're the worried. presence of them, um, they will shoot them. Mm. Mm. I'm not taking questions, ma'am, at this point. Is that okay? Okay. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about falconry, and you and I sort of come from that basis. I, I did all my initial groundwork in the States, so I have an American kind of aesthetic around it um, because when I started doing it, we could, we, it wasn't, wasn't illegal here, but it certainly wasn't legal, if that makes sense. Mm, that's right. And you were doing it under the radar for years. <laughs> and that's how you did it, because you didn't have anyone to sort of mentor off, really, eh? Well, I started with kahu, harrier hawks. They were um, seen as a common bird. Nobody really um, took much notice or, no. or cared. And, and also, the amount of time that you spend uh, building a relationship with your bird. Uh, it's easy to say you've trained the bird, but... Uh, really, the birds train you. <laughs> they're wild birds. They're independent. So the only reason that you get to work with them is because you have established a, a trust and a relationship. So this is hours per day, uh, up to five hours per day every day for the first three weeks just to free-fly them. But nobody really takes much notice of a single woman in a paddock, you know, that's blowing a whistle. <laughs> <laughs> until they see the bird come down, but they don't actually make the relationship that the, the two of you might be together. So you, you can go under the radar, yes. Especially when you live rurally, of course. <laughs> so when I used to drive trains many years ago, I guess I was a train driver, uh, people used to ask me this random question and they'd say, do you steer? Do you have to steer those things? And it was amazing to me that people <laughs> thought this. <laughs> And one of the things about birds of prey is that they often think that you have them in captivity, that you uh, mm. that they can't go, but they can. Mm. Talk about that. Yes, well, uh, that's one of the things that we, we, we do. We free-fly our birds. They're, they are free. You know, the, uh, the whole training uh, around falconry is about that relationship, but, but that just enables you to witness uh, wild normal flight behaviour and hunting sequences. I can't take a bird out into a paddock and go, oh, go get that rabbit. You know, it's just not going to work. You, you have to stack it. Um, the odds in the bird's favour, yes, you can do that, but you're just witnessing normal, natural uh, behaviour. And sometimes they will go off and, and find something to, to chase. It's, it depends on many things. You know, these birds are very smart. They're 
strategic. You know, they're taking into account the sun direction, the wind direction. Um, they're looking at the prey that's available. Um, and they're not going to waste energy and effort chasing something that's not going to be a fruitful exercise. And I don't know how many times I've been at Wingspan, probably two or three now, mm. where we've, you've been flying mm. and the crowd's sitting there, and some of you have probably been to Wingspan, I'm sure, and the crowd's sitting there and um, suddenly Aussie would take off and mm. he, you're, gonna, you're doing a, a session in front of the people, but suddenly he sees a... Um, uh, uh, I don't know, a sparrow, yes. and kills it in front of the people. people oh, wow, you know. But I don't have... It's an honourable sport. It's an honourable sport, and I used to hunt with guns myself, and I don't very often now, because um, once you kill with birds, you, you just they, they're giving you this honour and privilege of being present with them while they do exactly what they do in the wild. And it's a it's a... It captures you in a way that you, oh. guns now. I just feel it's not it's not honourable mm. to me now. Um, so I'm not, I don't have any issue with people doing it. Mm. I still well, do it occasionally. You, you, you agree with this honourable right. hunting? Yeah. Um, so uh, falconry itself um, uh, basically preceded um, guns being invented. Gunpowder. So the relationship that you had with your bird was to train it to feed your family. This is this predates supermarkets being available and being able to. <laughs> trot down to the shop. So you, you trained your bird to be able to feed your, your family protein, obviously, through the winter time as well. But around that, it wasn't just providing for your, your family. It was keeping that bird in the absolute best condition that you possibly could so it could hunt effectively, so you could feed your family. So it's not just about training the bird, it's also about controlling its weight, its, um, its fatness or not, its um, fitness, uh, and its feathers as well. You're looking at the whole um, holistic view around that bird. And obviously, um, for people that might steal your trained bird back in the, the 10th century or so, there were huge fines uh, for, for doing that because you were robbing from your your neighbour and um, potentially um, compromising uh, that family around food. So there's this lovely rich culture that goes around falconry as well. And we can look back to the Horus and the pyramids, you know. So 6,000 years, I think, it, uh, falconry goes back. So it's been around for a long time and it is the oldest form of hunting uh, that the world has known um, before fishing. Um, uh, as obviously before guns, mm. Mm. and the irony that now now shot um, with guns yeah, doesn't escape me. You mm. know, if you think of mm. uh, all the birds in the States, you know, the gold, the eagles that have been found with lead shot, because they haven't changed their rules around that. We have. Um, during duck shooting season, you can't use lead. So mm. it's they're getting killed by mm. that kind of stuff. But give us some of the words that we know. There are so many common words, and if you're a wordsmith, this fascinates me, and it did when I started learning. Some of the words that are in everyday use that came from falconry, like haggard, which is how I feel a bit on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Explain that one. Well, well exactly, um, and we draw from history as well with falconry. So uh, generally falconers, for example, will hold their bird on the left hand um, on the gauntlet, 
Uh, and that's just because most people are right-handed, so you, you just need your right hand to tie knots and things like that. So this is where the expression, your right-hand man, has come from. It's a falconer expression. Yeah. We use a leash, uh, which we tie around our finger, and that's where tied around your finger comes from. Under your thumb, oh, these are all very troll. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it's a very rich language. Or cage, of history. Ca yeah. old codger, cage, so yeah. in royal times... Yeah, you'd cadge a lift, so it would be a portable perch that you would take out into the flying paddocks, and uh, that was called a cadge. So, uh, and then that changed to cadge a lift, to the old codger, uh, uh, words like that that um, add uh, uh, another a feather, another a feather in your cap, <laughs> because that meant, didn't it, that you mm. if you had the more feathers you had, mm. the more birds you had in royal. Mm. back in the royal 12th century in England, whatever. Yes, because you had the time and, mm. and money to be able mm. to, to do that. Mm. Um, other words, um, for example, uh, would uh, the word for a hawk to drink is called bows, and, of course, that's been uh, changed over the years to the old petrol bowsers. Yeah. And then, of course, that got changed a little bit with a little bit more alcohol to booze. <laughs> so I'm not <laughs> suggesting that uh, falconers um, like a tipple, but depends which country you're in, really. <laughs> and, of course, it is very different in other countries. Mm. Like you've spent time in the UA, United um, Arab mm. Emirates. I haven't. Um, I've been many places but not there. To talk about that because you got sponsored by an oil sheik yes. to fly on Emirates and there they have their perches for the falcons which yes. is terribly civilised. Yes. Um, and tell me about that. I think, well, the, uh, I've been to four international falconry festivals and the last one that I attended was in uh, Dubai uh, and supported by uh, the uh, UAE to sponsor falconers from all over the world. And that was around sharing our culture, that was around sharing stories, uh, everything from first aid to rehabilitation, you, you name it. Uh, it was quite amazing. We, we ended up, I think we were one of 82 countries who attended, and it was the largest uh, event outside of the Olympics. And... With 82 countries, not, of course, everybody speaks English. And so it was very rich in its culture and colour, and yet we could talk to anyone. We got very animated, you know, with, oh, how does your bird fly? You know, da, 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 da. And we would laugh around campfires until um, the early hours, and it, um, it was really quite a timeless setting. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, very timeless. Mm. Mm. And I found that in North America, you know, we go into the... Mm. Kansas and Oklahoma and every year they have in Texas and places like that and Hunt and it's there's such a unity around falconry it's a pretty small world community and you do get to know a lot of people in fact both of us are friends with Helen MacDonald who wrote H's for Hawk um, I wish she was here today I'm sure she'd be even yes. more fascinating than we are oh, sure. yeah. she did retweet the fact that we were appearing this morning so I was pleased with that but Debbie is particularly uh good friends with Helen. Tell us about Helen a little bit, because I think, I don't know how many people have read that book. It's a great book. Hmm. Well, obviously, ours are, you, uh, yeah. are quite different books, and that took, took her through her personal journeys, particularly through grieving. Uh, but again, uh, it comes down to that relationship of, of working with your bird or birds, um, as it might be. Um, it, it's... 
almost um, overwhelming that relationship that you have. And dare I say it, I've probably been pulled up from my family and friends a number of times that I've spent so much time with with my birds. But that's the, the, the choice that uh, you make at the time to do the best that you possibly can for, for, for those birds. But uh, I, I guess they take you through a personal journey as well. And no differently for, for Helen, that you know she's You're such saying. a good writer to be able oh, yeah. to yeah. Uh, talk a, around that. And no differently uh, with this particular book, The Hunters. It's a it's a 25 year journey of well, probably a bit longer than that actually, um, of um, personal encounters. And that's really what I'm wanting to celebrate is around uh, uh, people uh, like me that. Uh, can engage with wildlife. We've become very displaced in today's world and uh, uh, away from what's in our backyard. Um, Wingspan itself specialises in that engagement in, it, in the wild and in captivity. So even though we have these wild birds that are free-flying, they come back, albeit for a little piece of meat that we provide for them, one of the things I am proud of, though, is that we do give people an opportunity to hold a falcon. And we can talk about education, but we've had 70, over 70,000 children who have held a falcon on the glove. That bird isn't um, tied there. It can fly away at any point, and I can guarantee that those 70,000 children will not forget it. We've also had numbers of other people with personal journeys um, who relate to birds of prey. And uh, that has brought us to tears, um, mm. that uh, we've had um, autistic children that have um, brought sentences together for the first time in their lives, you know, mm. and that's mm. the sort of thing. That, mm. Mm. So the birds of prey are the conduit for us to be able to um, relate to wildlife and have some uh, engagement with them. Mm. Well, I think, you know, modern life is, I know for me it's, it's been sanity, you know, at, at times, just being involved in it, learning about it, doing it, going to the States, doing it there. I think it's it's the call of the wild. I mean, that's the thing about birds, even sparrows in your backyard, eh? Mm. It's, they are of the wild. Mm. Um, mm. And I think, you know, people are losing touch with that so much, and to me it's an anchor to another world that we're really losing. Mm. You'd agree? Yes, exactly. Um, um, I think there is something wonderful about birds in general. Yeah, Obviously, I've got a little bit of bias. Um, I'm not that... <laughs> birds chick chickens, I don't... No, I don't you know, know, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. They lay eggs, you know. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. You know, we've got chickens, you know, yeah. birds that lay eggs for us. Um, we've got birds that pollinate. We've got birds mm. that sing. Birds give us pleasure, you know. Mm. Uh, birds are good for the soul. We, we love the song. We, we love to go to islands and see birds flying around and so um, we have a, a personal um, attachment mostly to birds and yes. until I suppose Edgar Allan Poe brought out the birds people don't like crows so much but um, <laughs> anymore but you know um, at the same time they can teach us so much and that's on a personal level but also in the wider sense so one of the themes that goes through the hunters' books is uh, around the birds of prey being the barometers of the environment. Yeah. 
So because they're top of the food chain, they directly reflect, ultimately, uh, what may, may affect us mm, as well. Mm. And I, you are a bit like me. You share this kind of depressing, kind of dark view of the world at the moment. I don't. I think a lot of people are feeling this. Um, I don't know how long we have as a species, humans. I don't. My own belief is it's not that long. I, I think you share that. Mm. What? Are, why do we do it? Mm. Um, and also, what are we seeing? And I know what I'm saying. What are we seeing in birds that are telling us that things uh, aren't going quite right? The breeding cycle, mm. for instance. Well, exactly. So we talk about global warming. So now we have seasons that are blended and confused, and we have birds also that are... Uh, are confused. We have eggs being laid in June um, instead of in springtime. Mm. And of course everything has a consequence. There's a season for a reason, if you like. So that, that has changed. But we see in the bigger picture as well that uh, we've done studies of uh, falcons, kariria, in the Auckland Islands. And uh, these are birds that have been in the Auckland, well, for how many millions of years they've evolved there, um, uh, that have extremely high mercury levels um, because that's been recorded through the food chain. We have um, on land uh, issues around lead, um, particularly around cities, and high lead content um, being detected in birds like hawks mm -hmm, as well. So why do we keep doing it? Like, so, so your my thing is very selfish. I just like birds and want to fly them and don't want to have too much to do with with what you're doing, which is well, I mean, I do. But wingspan's a whole different deal. It's a whole education facility. Hmm. What if we think that things are going to hell in a handbasket environmentally? Hmm. What keeps us? What keeps you going? Oh, what keeps us going? What keeps you going? I think it's important to, to love life regardless of um, how long we might have on this planet, individually or mm -hmm. collectively um, as well. Sure, we have a lot of um, challenges to face. Um, I'm hoping people are smart enough to be able to address that in the long term. But in the meantime, um, I think it is um, You mean important. tech's going to save us? Yeah. Well, uh, we're... I think the consensus is, is that we're likely to be a little bit safer in New Zealand for, for longer. Um, yes. So... Uh, Before the, those Silicon the demands, people come down and... Mm, yeah. The demands on the world at the moment are, are well known. The things around good food, good water, um, good shelter, you know, the basics that we, we all want and need. Um, so mm. we need to look after one another. Oh, we need to love one another, oh. and as you said, we have to get a very long mortgage. A very long mortgage. Get a long mortgage because you don't even have to pay it off. Okay, we have these conversations. Um, okay, tell me about your M M M M M Z M M Z M M M Z M M N Z M. Yeah. What does that stand for? Member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. So Debbie got that in 2000. And oh, thank you. Thank you. Now, I, I don't know about you, I'm a great believer in titular honours. <laughs> but it was funny because when Debbie got... I don't, I don't believe in them really. But, you know, when my mate here got one, <laughs> I was first, you know, down to Wellington 
on the on the Terps with her celebrating. <laughs> so I was quite proud. It's weird, you know, how we can do that. But um, how did that feel? And my God, um, you deserved it. A little bit overwhelming, you know. Um, I'm not quite sure how the system goes as far as that, that process of, of being nominated, etc. But, of course, humbled by that. But... I guess like uh, most people that receive those sorts of honours, everybody agrees that it's never a single effort. Um, so it's because there's a whole heap of people that are working around you. So I'm proud of the fact that I am the founder of Wingspan, but there is no way that I can say that it's it's all me. So uh, the immunism, yes, uh, that was one for the team. And um, I'd like to think that it's always helpful for sponsorship applications. <laughs> Possibly the Kuru Club. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm hoping I get one. Upgrades. One really. Don't I don't believe in them, but I'll, I'll take one. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to get it for, yeah. but there you are. I'm very jealous of yeah, you. Right? Uh, there you go. Um, <laughs> but thank you. That's all right. You've got something in your bag, haven't you? I do. I've got... All th this is my falconer's bag, so um, I really am unfamiliar with talking to people when I don't have a bird on the arm. So I, I brought a bird <laughs> so that I could um, in my comfort level, but um, I think I'm gonna, we're going to be staying around after the, this, this session and things to do some signing as well. But I brought props just in case, you know, that I, I needed to... Um, um, yeah, the whistle... So I had this thing around um, being outstanding in my field. <laughs> you know. And How many times around, have I heard this? You know, I still love it. Uh, sit, sitting on a park bench when your bird's gone missing for about an hour and all you're doing is blowing a whistle, wearing everyone's, a heavy jacket. And everyone's wondering what the hell you're doing. Surrounded by dead chickens. <laughs> Baby chicken. It's a hard one to sort of explain to random picnickers, you know. Um, well, I, that would be that, you. You did the release of the falcons at the at the Rotorua at the um, at the me, museum. At the yes. museum. So there's the remember. Yes, well, of course, that's you right. Remember. Yes, I remember. That's right. Um, and I'm really proud of that one as well because again, um, part of our philosophy is to engage um, people with wildlife. So. We sat round and we brainstormed that and we thought, well, what if we brought a threatened species back into the city? Because people aren't going out into the forest anymore. So we had this uh, release program and it is the first time that a threatened species has ever been released in a city. But this is a falconer's method of release. We could, well, we were challenged by uh, the philosophy around that. But we released these birds from the top of the uh, well, the, the Rotorua Museum. You've, you've all seen it, the, the Tudor building that is there. Most photographed building in the, the whole of New Zealand, I think. And we've been releasing birds there for five years. Uh, but a tall building is no different to a cliff-racing falcon in the middle of town. The advantage was that there was no power lines. It was all underground wiring, so... Electrocution wasn't an issue. We assumed deliberate shooting wouldn't be an issue in a, in a township as well. And we've been supplementing the, um, the, the food for those falcons over five years. And uh, indeed, one of our very first birds that we released, Hatu Patu is his name. He's a bit of a bird hunter from a few hundred years ago, so we thought it fitting to also name him in honour of a Te Arua legend. 
and Hutu Putu still turns up at 3.30 every afternoon as a wild bird at the feeding table. You know. Most people don't, you know, if they're visiting the gardens, they, they don't necessarily see that there's a falcon or they or kareria, or even know how special that is, you know, and I've been pulled up by a few parents when I've dragged their children, I said, come on, check this out, check this out, you know, there's a falcon, and yeah, I get excited. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and some other people do too, don't they, but... Well, yeah, but you know, you don't know what you don't know, and don't know so um, I'm hoping again yeah. that, you know, there's, there's something about the, the rawness, the wildness... Um, you, you can't really train a bird. They just allow you to be there, you know. Yeah, mm. they put up with us, really. And now I can talk properly because I've okay. got my gorgeous. So what, you, what you got in there? I don't even know what you got in there. Okay. Hoodwinked is another fabulous word. Yeah, hoodwinked. I did actually want to bring a live bird today, but it oh, became a little okay. bit tricky. Oh, mate. Okay, that's one of Noel's stuffed ones. This is red. This is red. His name is, is very, very cool. Um, but just for the record... We don't go out and collect birds from the wild uh, at Wingspan. These are birds that have come in that have been injured mm. um, or orphaned. And we um, train them, we fly them, we give them hunting skills and we let them go. If they have permanent injuries, those are the birds that we pair together and we breed from them and we release their young instead. We might release them in the middle of a city like Rotorua we also look at releasing them over places like vineyards or horticultural blocks, which is a form of biological control. It has an economic benefit for the, uh, for the uh, grape owners, the viticulturalists as well. So around that, it's also about finding ways in which uh, commercial interests can complement conservation efforts. And so that's what we're also um, very aware of. Mm. Tied around your little finger. Mm-hmm. Wrapped around your finger, yeah. Mm. And there's a falconer's knot as well. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's very... All, it's all very special, so... Yes. I'm in my comfort zone while I'm talking to you now. See, that's much better. And that is actual... That's actual red. And that's yeah. the actual size of an actual falcon, pretty much. Yeah, he Reed is. Reed was male, so he was a smaller. Because the females are generally bigger, and mm. birds of prey, because they have to do, like most women, they've they got to do, do most all the, the work. work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always be careful of a, a female falcon. Yeah. You know. More aggressive. But these aren't um, angry birds. Um, uh, Kariria, New Zealand falcon particularly, has evolved in this country without any natural predators or competitors. It means that they're unafraid. They're bolshy. Um, they're really not scared of people at all. And you can approach them quite closely in the, in the wild. Of course, the downside of that is that uh, introduced pests of this country. Um, falcons are very vulnerable around that. They do things like nest on the ground. Um, doesn't do them any good at all. Um, they hunt to live. They live to hunt. They don't kill for the sake of it. Um, it's only for their own needs. So there's ways in which you can work around um, uh, those sorts of hunting aspects as well. Just so that people can... Yeah. That's pretty much what they look like. Live. Mm. So we celebrate the live ones as well as the ones that don't make it. And um, so we also are very strong in research and, and Wingspan holds the largest research uh, repository of birds of prey um, anywhere in New Zealand outside of a university or a museum. Mm. Very proud of that. 
we have all of this wealth of knowledge over the last well, 35 years, if you like, and it's all very well having that knowledge, but if you don't share it, uh, what was the point in learning it in the first place? So you know, we share that with students and researchers. Uh, we go out to the forest each year. We monitor falcons. Mm, mm, very holistic. Now, would somebody have the time? Because I made the stupid mistake of not wearing a watch. Is it? Already? Okay. All right. We haven't got to the nitty gritty. I think we're done. I, except, <laughs> ma'am, you just had one question in the back that you were very keen to ask. I'll be very keen to hear it. Mm -hmm. um, surely it's illegal to shoot a native bird. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. How many people do you manage to catch in the action, in doing well, it and deal hard. to them? It's an interesting comment because uh, we have taken Department of Conservation to task uh, around not being robust enough in those prose prosecutions, and I think that that's true of not just um, falcons but across the uh, across the board. It's a, up to a hundred thousand dollar fine, two years um, sentence, as well. But uh, the uh, the forensic proof that you require through the court system to just, have a yeah. successful prosecution is and they very, do very it. difficult. They, they, you'd never see people shooting them. They, they just, it's very hard mm. to... Hey, I just wanted to say thank you very much for all that you do. And um, I got interested through Helen McDonald's book and then came to Wingspan and was really, really impressed. But I just wanted to know how you got into it originally. Like, what... What was your interest? How did you first get into Birds of Prey? Uh, yeah, it's always a tricky question, that one. Um, you know, um, I think that we're all the same in the sense that Birds of Prey capture our imaginations, um, and they have done for you know thousands of years. But for me personally, I started working at a place, Rainbow Springs, many of you will um, know the place, and it was at a time when... Um, Conservation really wasn't on the radar. No one really cared about a silly teenager that really wanted to work with Kiwis. So um, 16 years old, I started working at, at Rainbow Springs and um, ended up being curator and looking after Kiwis and, you know, and doing these wonderful um, uh, trips with the wildlife service, which gave me, I think, a little bit of an advantage because... I managed to see these birds that I was caring for in the wild, uh, so I had a better idea about their uh, needs um, in captivity as well as their food as well. But uh, somebody brought in a, um, a, an injured hawk and it hurt. <laughs> um, you know, a hawk handshake is, is very, very hard. Mm. And, um, what do you mean it hurt? I mean, it literally hurt. <laughs> yeah, it literally, the pressure is, is amazing. And, uh, and that made you want to work with them? Well, I figured that um, There's something you're I'd me better about learn how to do this properly. Yes. And yes. so yep. uh, I started researching that and then I got hooked, uh, literally. Yeah. 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 There is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They do hurt when they get you and they do invariably occasionally get you. Yeah. So you learn about that. Any, yeah. Anybody else want to? Oh, yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, I, I, yeah, um, I'm curious about diet. Um, yes. New Zealand's a country with practically no mammals whatsoever, and my lay perception is that hawks eat rats and mice. So and prior, to, prior to the introduction of all that kind of stuff, what did they eat? Uh, well, this is the land of birds, you know, um, uh, basically. Well, it was. Yeah. Well, it was. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, New Zealand falcon, for example, were probably one of the, the, the falcons of the world that was developing to be flightless, actually, <laughs> to be honest. Um, simply they, they nest on the ground, but they have short wings and a long tail. They're excellent with their feet. They're running around on the running on the ground as well. It looks a little bit um, comical uh, when we, we, we see it now. But uh, uh, they had um, all sorts of flightless birds that they were able to eat as well. Harriers are, are relatively newcomers um, to New Zealand, Aotearoa. Uh, and it wasn't until the land uh, was starting to be cleared for farming that Harriers took a better hold. Harriers don't like flying through the forest quite as much as what New Zealand falcon uh, uh, would do so. So um, a range of, of, of species, mm, yeah, yeah, that they, they would hunt. Mm. Mm. They found a way anyway. Yes, they have. Yeah. Kia ora. I was wondering if you could tell me about um, the Māori symbolism to do with birds of prey, particularly harriers. Uh, with, with harriers, uh, with kahu, I say we have kahu, kariria, often Māori will um, blend the two together. But, uh, for example, with kahu, um, they're a little bit like people. They get lighter in colour as they get older. <laughs> so you're very dark brown kahu harriers um, are young birds and they slowly go this lovely grey-white colour. So for Māori... Uh, they would consider that would be a, a white feather from a kahu would be a wise bird, you know. So um, that put it up on the pedestal. And I think that uh, around the world as well, internationally, international cultures usually put birds of prey at a very high level. Um, Ruru, of course. Um, and Ruru. Well, Ruru are a little bit different because um, depending on what part of New Zealand you might be from, uh, it can be a good sign or a bad sign. So mm. they are the messengers of the underworld. They're between the living, you know, the dark and the light. And so local stories will change uh, around that. Um, uh, but, yeah, uh, for, for Ruru, they're steeped in tradition, you know, in carvings um, as well, and being wise. Um, as far as we know, Maori never used them for falconry purposes, though. They no. never sort of went that far. Like American, Native American Indians, uh, Native American Americans, I should say, not Native Indian. Uh, Native Americans never used um, that I'm aware of. Mm. Never used golden eagles for hunting at all. So it's they just revered them in a way that was mm. different from. From us colonists. Well, also for, for Māori, there, there are anecdotal reports of having pet falcons or pet um, ruru or, mm. or kahu, mm -hmm. um, but they didn't really need them for hunting. Um, oh. the, the, the food was available. They, they, uh, with so many flightless birds that we had here, it was easy pickings um, without them hunting. One more? Um, I've just read a novel uh, set in North America where... Um, Golden eagles were particularly susceptible to uh, damage from wind farms. I wonder whether wind farms in New Zealand pose any danger to birds of prey. Um, but I think possibly more to our shorebirds. Um, you know, New Zealand is also the, the land of uh, lots of seabirds that are coming in from sea, and I think for wind farms, particularly around the coast, that there are um, issues uh, that need to be done there. 
Um, but we know of uh, one wind farm where the falcons were so smart they just waited for the birds to be hit by the <laughs> by the turbines and and picked it up at the bottom. You and, know, you know is, they're quite happy to eat their mates. You, you know, know when I think about it. I'd like to think, you know, I'd like to suggest that New Zealand falcon cardiaria, they're one of the smartest um, birds of prey in the world, and uh, I know I've got some bias around that, but there's a few biologists that will um, back me up on that, but they do everything fast. I, I'd like to think that um, uh, turbines uh, wouldn't really be uh, too much of an issue for them. Um, I'd like to think that too. Uh, but but uh, uh, these are the things that we uh, need to learn, and... Uh, and investigate um, to find what, what the issues are. So, so far we haven't found any dead bodies, um, or they haven't been found under turbines. Mm. Um, uh, but again, uh, seabirds different. Okay, we've got to wrap it up. But um, I want to thank you for coming, everybody. And I want to thank you, Debbie, for everything you do. I <laughs> know that you're always available to me for advice. Mm. I always know that I've got my, someone's got my back. If I need, there's something wrong with a bird, you bring Deb, you're going to get help. Um, about anything. And what you do is really, really, really important. And I, for one, thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm also, um, thank you as well. <laughs> I was so nervous with Rachel being here. Um, but I'm hoping that through... Um, but I'm your friend. Yeah, I know. I know, that's what makes it scary. I've gone gentle. <laughs> But anyway, at the same thank, time, thank there you. are, I hope, some messages, some take-home messages that you might get from our book. So put oh, up yeah. a... Put up a breeding nest box in your backyard and help the ruru and move. You You'll know. Le learn a lot from this book, honestly, and Debbie will sign it for you. But the photos, on it, honestly, in here are awesome. So thank you, my thank friend. You. Thank you. To hear more published tracks from previous years, search Going West on this Auckland Library's podcast channel. Interested in the history of the festival? Auckland Library's Heritage Collections houses the full sound and festival archive since its steam train journey beginnings in 1996. Search Kura Heritage Collections or visit Heritage Collections at the Central City Library or research West in Henderson for access to the collection. Going West Writers Festival 2019 opens on the 6th of September and runs till Sunday the 13th. More information is available at the Going West website, goingwestfest.co.nz.